when you're wanting increased automation, increased efficiency, better control, you go to utilizing electric motors to control motion, whether it's rotation or some sort of you know, precision type activity. And we have done is taken the diesel engine off of frack truck, taken the transmission off of the frack truck, and we put in an electric motor and a variable frequency drive, which gives you ultimate speed and torque control over that electric motor to be able to power a pump. The added benefit that we also get is that in producing that electricity, we don't have to burn diesel anymore. Oil and gas today is more than exploration and production. It is more than the feet drilled or the hours of continuous pumping. The oil field is a group of people, companies, technologies, and institutions working towards providing the world with safe, affordable energy that is sustainable for the billions of people that depend on the success of the industry. The Oil Field 360 podcast is a 360-degree deep dive into the leaders of the industry who will provide listeners with a first-hand account of what it takes to build, maintain, and lead the energy business into the future. The Oil Field 360 podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler, one of the largest and most experienced energy investment banking firms in the industry offering M&A advisory, capital markets execution, and investment research. For more information, please visit SimmonsPSC.com. Lockton Global Energy and Marine, uncommonly different. Lockton is the world's largest privately owned insurance broker and risk finance advisor. Lockton's global energy expertise is centered in Houston and represents the largest concentration of energy specialists, clients, and experiential knowledge in the upstream, midstream, and downstream segments of the oil and gas industry. Visit LockedIn.com for more information. Tomahawk Safety, a leading manufacturer of safety gloves ergonomically designed for superior fit, offering best-in-class protection and helping you combat the industry's toughest jobs. Tomahawk is also supporting our frontline healthcare workers, by offering isolation gowns, gloves, masks, and other critical medical PPE. For more information, please visit TomahawkSafety.com. Range Valuation Services. Range is the only oil and gas-focused valuation and appraisal firm in the financial services industry. Range specializes in appraising and valuing oil field equipment, machinery, inventory, and property and customarily works directly with clients, lenders, investment bankers, insurers, and private equity and debt sponsors. For more information, please visit rangevaluationservices.com. Welcome to the Oilfield 360 podcast. This is, uh, my name is Josh Lowry. I am one of the hosts of Oilfield 360 podcast. We are entering into season two, and I just wanted to tell all of our listeners and our audience, thank you for your support. David DeRoe, co-host extraordinaire, season two. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. I'm excited that our uh, our other guest co-host, Mr. John Daniel of the newly minted Daniel Energy Partners, is joining us this morning to have a conversation with our good longtime friend, Mr. Ben Bodishbaugh, CEO of Evolution Well Services. So thank you both for being here. Thank you. Glad so, to be here. I mean, this is, we're just kind of coming out season two, just like an explosion. I mean, we've got guest hosts, we've got uh, 
you know, CEO. The guy, by the way, Ben, we've been after you for how many months to come on the podcast? A few. A few months. We appreciate your participation today. Um, what did he say? He didn't want to sound negative. That's why he didn't want to come on here. Is that the deal? Well, and I'll let him comment on that. Uh, good, I'm like that we're starting with this question. So one of the reasons that you're you were somewhat reluctant to come on is you would tell me that Josh, nobody wants to hear what I have to say, and it was it was to the effect that the industry was going to be in trouble. Uh, this was months ago. This was uh, no, no less than four months ago. And I like I'm not trying to say that I told you so here or you're saying that, but you, many of the things that uh, that you predicted have come true very quickly. Yeah, I'm not, not attempting to prognosticate anything, but uh, when you looked at just a number of the writing on the wall, the ecosystem in which we're all trying to survive in the upstream oil and gas space, uh, you could just see that kind of the nutrients were running out. And, you know, as the number of uh, months ago, our clients uh, got cut off by uh, their equity investors, whether it was banks or private investment uh, coming in, and they really had to start living on a budget and producing free cash flow the demands that they were putting on their service companies have basically fallen to the extent where the service companies can't survive for very long, or at least not at margins that are going to encourage people to continue to invest into those businesses. And this was not at where we're at in the middle of COVID and Russia, right. Saudi, you know, $15 oil. This was when we were at $60 oil. And so you can, kind of look forward, um, you know, from where we were then and saw what was probably going to be a slow two to three year uh, decline if something didn't structurally change within the industry. And then you had a couple of global events happen and all of a sudden in 30 days, we're kind of where I, I thought we would be in two to three years. Right. Um, which is pretty tragic because uh, what you see going on in the industry right now is, you know, not good for any of us. And it's going to reshape, I think, all of our lives. So. Well, we will get to this sad portion of the conversation. Yeah, it's kind of deep to start yeah, off. We're, we're not going to start so, yeah. there. <laughs> I just, uh, I, you know, it, I just appreciate you coming on the podcast. So before we get going here, Evolution Well Services, how long have you been with Evolution? Uh, so I joined Evolution in October of 13. Okay. And, uh, it's been a few years of R&D and, and research and, and some prototyping of, of new equipment. And then we commercialized the business in the first half of 2016. For those of people listening, this is a global podcast. We're probably have one of the largest audiences worldwide than, than anybody. I say probably, but uh, we do. And tell everybody what makes Evolution unique when compared to other, well, um, your competitors. You bet. So we're uh, uh, exclusively a, a hydraulic fracturing company servicing uh, the oil and gas, primarily the, the shale basins here within the U.S. You know, what's been uh, from an equipment profile, uh, the, the state of hydraulic fracturing equipment since like 1949, when Earl P. Halliburton fracked the first well in central Oklahoma, uh, it's been a plunger style pump driven by either a gasoline or diesel style engine uh, with either a belt drive or a transmission or some kind of geared connection. And there really hasn't been much improvement in technology other than, you know, getting, you know, more powerful engines or increasing the horsepower on pumps. But there has never really been any big step changes up until the founders of, of this technology, which actually dates back as early as 2011, looked and said, all right, we got a white page. How can we do this different? And when you see how 
automation across various industries, uh, including some parts of, of the oil and gas business, uh, much more offshore than anything onshore. When you're wanting increased automation, increased efficiency, better control, you go to utilizing electric motors to control motion, whether it's rotation or some sort of you know, precision type activity. And we have done is taken the diesel engine off of frack truck, taken the transmission off of the frack truck, and we've put an electric motor and a variable frequency drive, which gives you ultimate speed and torque control over that electric motor to be able to power a pump. The added benefit that we also get is that in producing that electricity, we don't have to burn diesel anymore. So we actually uh, haul out a, a custom packaged GLM2500 plus G4 uh, gas turbine engine uh, that's in the same aerodivative family of what you'll see underneath the wings on a lot of the big uh, uh, jumbo jetliners. And we couple it up to a large electromechanical generator and we produce our own electricity on site in 99% of the cases burning customer supplied field gas. And so the, the cost economics are uh, a, a huge win, um, either for our client or for us, kind of depending upon how the, the negotiations go. Uh, but overall, you're pulling cost out of a system that is too heavily burdened with cost. So, You've been there for a while now, and you've gone through several iterations of your fleet design, if I'm not mistaken. Can you walk us through what it was the day you started and where it is today and where it will be? A year or two from now. Yeah, you bet. So, uh, you know, we, we jokingly say, you know, evolution's not just our name, but it's kind of part of our DNA because we're always trying to figure out how can we do things better? How can we make improvements on the equipment? And when I joined in 2013, uh, the, the predecessor business had been a Canadian entity that was uh, a very bespoke fleet of equipment for a project up in northern Canada, very remote. It was not going to move very often. These were some massive pads that were being planned. There were like 32 wells per pad. Uh, it, you'd, be, you'd be out there with a frack fleet for maybe seven or eight months. And so... Uh, what was really built was more of kind of a frack factory. It was all skid mounted. It was all very large. It was all very heavy, but it was a lot of power density. We had like 10,000 horsepower between four pumps on a single skid, but it wasn't very mobile. And uh, it may take, it never actually got moved from one pad to another due to some uh, the market falling apart back in the summer of 2013. But uh, it essentially would have been probably 10 days to two weeks to try and relocate from one location to another, which just is not practical. And when, uh, as I said, that Canadian business uh, lost its contract and uh, the company was in a position where it had to shift and kind of change its target client base, uh, it's when I came on and we spent uh, the better part of a year and a half basically taking the technology and the IP, um, a lot of the lessons learned that were very good and made a lot of improvements upon it. It took a little longer for us to actually get it to market than what we were hoping. But like I said, in the uh, first half of 2016, we finally commercialized with a, a platform uh, that was 100% trailer mounted. It was very nimble and, and quick to be able to move from pad to pad, just like a uh, conventional frack fleet, which is a mobile little industry of you know 30 to 40,000 horsepower of, of some form or fashion uh, that, that we have to pack up and you know haul down the road to another well site and you got to tear down, move and rig it back up in like 
24, 36 hours. I mean, that's, that's the goal you have to do. And when you're doing that weekly, you've got to make sure it's an efficient process and, and you can't take days upon days to actually get that done. So, so that was one improvement. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I'd say that the other big improvement we've had is the, even from the Canadian to our inception here in the U S we were still utilizing a, uh, a, a stock G uh, TM 2500 trailer mounted power pack, which mm-hmm. is a, uh, it's a, it's a great unit. It's very reliable. There's hundreds uh, of them around the world supplying power and uh, either post disaster and remote areas or, or just where temporary power may be needed, but it's not what we would term like frack mobile. It, it's transportable really. And uh, yeah. we ended up custom packaging our turbine to where we can now set that thing up and, 13 hours from getting on site. Mm-hmm. And, uh, actually, that's rig down, move, and set up. I think the fastest we've done is 13 hours. We usually average somewhere around 17. And, and again, in a business where efficiency, time is money, you know, those sorts of improvements are the kind of little tweaks that we're continuing to try to do uh, along our system, increase the amount of horsepower density that we have on our pumps, uh, increasing the capabilities of our, our blenders, the reliability of equipment, getting rid of frack iron where we can and trying to go to big bore solutions or, uh, you know, flexible conduits of some sort, uh, you know, always trying to push the envelope. Yeah. No, that's, that's pretty impressive, you know, less than a 24 hour mode demode time and for 35 megawatt power unit it's yeah. uh it, it's there's nothing else in the world that's quite like it so so i know i know john's going to want to ask some more ease frack specific questions and obviously we're interested in that as well but you know i've known each other for a number of years jamie stewart introduced us when he was kicking off surefire you were uh running mission well services with charlie Lycom and and dave Dakota back in the days um talk to us about where he came from, how he got in the frack business anyways, because you're now CEO of Evolution Well Services. Um, we'd like to give our listeners a little bit of background about our guests. So before we launch more into Evolution, will you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you specifically got into the oil field? And- sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. It took a bit of a non-traditional route to get here. Uh, was born in uh Spent the first few years of my life in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Uh, still have a lot of family there currently, uh, but kind of moved all over the southeast. Uh, lived in Tennessee for a little while and then ended up kind of formative years uh, in Mobile, Alabama. And so that's where I went to high school and ended up uh, going to in-state college there, Auburn University, War Eagle. Uh, and there's, there's not many of us Auburn alum uh, in the oil and ga- gas industry currently. So uh, anytime we meet one, it's uh, it's it's a bit unique. Yeah, no, but, listen, uh, we, we, there's a few. It's nice to have a non-Aggie come on the chair. And, yeah. <laughs> I, I work with a lot of Aggies. Yeah, so I'm, I'm <laughs> we definitely all do. not going to say anything. Uh, no, no, we like them. They just folks, they start whooping but, uh, when they, they hear A and M. So it's nice to hear. Yeah, but uh, you know, all the my, my brothers, my dad, were all engineers of various sorts. Uh, didn't really know what I wanted to do going into college. Got into the engineering school. And and uh, ended up getting a civil engineering degree and figured I'd end up somewhere in construction. But in 
98, when I graduated, the uh, uh, construction industry was kind of in the shitter and nobody was really hiring unless I wanted to go work for the Alabama uh, Department of Transportation, which wasn't real high on my list. And yeah, that's uh, next to the guys that are actually in prison to get ready to go work <laughs> on the highway. Right. You know, it's one of those jobs where the, the job I ultimately ended up taking is the starting pay was about the same and I'd never worked more than 40 hours a week, but I'd also be getting that pay, same pay 10 years later. And, you know, there's just... Want to have something where there's a little more career opportunity. And uh, even though, you know, the last time oil was $15 was in 98 too. And so, but Dowell Schlumberger, that the old pressure pumping division of Schlumberger, they kind of had quotas for a number of engineers they had to hire every year, which was actually a pretty high number because the attrition rate was so god awful. So they had to hire like 200 engineers, whether they thought they needed them or not. And Typically, after about two years, there were probably only 25% of them left anyway. I mean, it was it was rough hours. I started off, it was all in the pressure pumping uh, division, but uh, started off uh, on the cementing crews. And, you know, I'm getting paid 32 grand a year to work 120 hours a week. I mean, it was just basically living in a pickup truck on the well site, well site to well site. And I was young, dumb, 21, you know. Where were you living, though? Well, so that was the other funny thing. When they offered me the job, they give you a map uh, of the U.S. And because they're hiring all these engineers from really all over the world. And, and the, the U.S. was the best training ground even back then when, when things were slow. But they kind of gave you this map of the U.S. It's broke up into like four quadrants. And I'd lived my whole life in the South. So I'm like, wow. Want to live in the South, so they moved me to Alice, Texas, which uh, <laughs> you can't get much further south than, than than Alice, Texas, in the lower forty-eight. So, do you remember a restaurant called Chentes down there? It's a long not. time ago. I do not. I mean, that's, I, that's when you know you're you're craving Mexican food during this coronavirus. Is I hear Alice, Texas, and I think of Chentes Mexican restaurant. Well, I only but, spent about nine months there, and uh, uh, most of that time was out in the field. So, uh, like where I more remember eating's like at the brush country uh down near the sarita gate entrance to <clears throat> the king ranch so and uh it was uh it was a time i mean it, we, we were busy in alice it was the only real active <clears throat> district back then south texas you know the conventional uh, uh, uh plays back then uh it's high pressure uh, gas and you know gas back then was was pretty pricey so it, it was attractive to go after uh the rest of the the u.s was uh in pretty bad shape so it was good training ground for me uh, uh got transferred uh, just a few miles north uh to uh victoria uh, after spending about a year in alice and then uh spent a couple of years there got my first taste of uh working with frack instead of cementing. And I realized, okay, this is the direction I've got to make sure my career goes. I don't want to get stuck cementing wells for, for the rest of my life. So, well, I mean, you, th like, those are two, you, you had to seriously want this. They start you in Alice, they move you to Victoria. So I don't know if that's a promotion on with all respect to the Victoria people down there, but that's, did you ever see a chupacabra on the location? Oh, probably a few. I mean, when you, when you stay awake for 36 hours at a time, you know, you start hallucinating. So, but, uh, we, uh, uh, yeah, so I spent a couple of years in Victoria, uh, then got transferred out to another garden spot, uh, Artesia, New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, I, you know, I was batting a thousand. Seriously. At that point. I mean, were, were hey, you listen, in love? John Daniels, you know, he's licking his chops over here. That's like uh, spring break. <laughs> yeah. That's we did spring break down yeah. in Dallas. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, it, you know, Artesia was kind of a cool place. It's yeah. tight knit little community. And, you know, back then it, it, uh, it, it was, 
even further off the edge of the map than it is today. But again, the good thing about Schlumberger uh, as an organization was if you showed a little bit of initiative and, and want to, and like they give you enough rope to hang yourself, right? And so like they just threw all kinds of, you know, I, I was 21 when I hired on with them. In a couple of years, I was managing a, a small district forum out there in New Mexico. And it, you know, I, I learned a lot really fast, got exposed to a lot of things really fast. And in, in both Victoria and Artesia, what was beneficial for me was we were growing districts. There was opportunity for work. And so we, we were growing. And so, you know, a lot of things that I kind of learned on at that point and not even really realizing it was how to, to build an organization, how to put a team together, how to, you know, retain the right people, motivate people, because these are all, you're also being very competitive, uh, you know, with, with uh, the other pressure pumping companies. And although there were only two other ones, really, Halliburton, BJ, and, and Dowell at, the, at that point in time. And, you know, at 98, I think there was only two and a half million horsepower, frack horsepower in North America. I mean, it was, it was a different business. But uh, yeah, so spent a couple of years in Artesia. Sorry, I'm getting a little, little sidetracked, no, no, uh, reminiscing no, about the days there, but... A lot of people don't know much about our, you know, Artesia's own Mac Chase and 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 what a great guy he is. Oh yeah, I mean Johnny Gray him. and yeah. you know the, the the Yates family. It, it's a very interesting little town, and, and the amount of money that was in this little town between yeah. those three families is kind of mind-boggling. Yeah. And uh, uh, and how they got their start in as entrepreneurial as they are, you know, with your background with Schlumberger, I know. Uh, fellow clients and stuff. I, when I think of some of the more successful entrepreneurs and CEOs that I've seen in well servicing, a lot of them have come from Schlumberger. And I think uh, Wayne Richards at uh, GR Energy yeah. Services. I think of you know Warren Zimok and mm -hmm. and uh, it's a great training yeah. ground. Yeah. yeah, great training ground. Uh, yourself, obviously, I keep in that in that cadre of people. But uh, Kurt Dosser and mm -hmm. and just some really great people that have that have come out of Schlumberger, only to go and compete against them. Yeah, out the field. Well, they are kind of the training ground for, yeah. for the industry. But they they pour a lot of time and money into making sure that their engineers, their management staff are very well-rounded in the yeah. business. They don't pigeonhole people and just say, this is your job, do this. You know, they, they you get a wide exposure to really a global organization. Now, you know, anytime you get to be an organization that, that, that is that large though, there ends up being a, a certain amount of bureaucracy and red tape, which ultimately got me very frustrated. Also, the imminent transfer to Rock Springs, Wyoming. So I was, I was you know, I was about to go four for four for, for garden spots. Yeah. And uh, uh, I, at, the, at that time, uh, I was married. I had three kids under three. So I've got twin daughters. Um, and uh, was, I was not moving my family to Wyoming. And so I started looking for opportunity. And uh, I had gotten a little bit of a heads up from a, a friend in the HR department that that was kind of going to be my next assignment. And uh, so I, I decided that I was going to choose my own destiny because you never turn down a transfer right. with a company mm -hmm. like that. You'll, you'll be blackballed. And, yeah. uh, they're, they're trying to build your, right. your your profile and your career. And if you say no, then you kind of get off track or your sponsor loses <clears> faith <throat> in you or whatever. But uh, but this was uh, summer of 03, which was right when Weatherford had committed to spend like $400 million to become the next big frat company and compete with, you know, the big three. And uh, I'd actually tried to get on at, at the first district that they had opened in Odessa, and they'd already filled the slot by the time I found out about it. But the they were just 
starting to hire for uh, the Decatur, Texas, up in North Texas, and at the early onset of the Barnett Shale. And so it ultimately ended up being uh, really probably the best opportunity I could have had because this was just right after, you know, Devin had bought Mitchell out. Mm-hmm. And there, people were still trying to figure out, you know, how do you unlock the Barnett Shale? So I saw the complete uh, kind of evolution and maturation of that basin uh, between a couple of companies, but uh, was, was there with Weatherford for two and a half years. Again, startup kind of deal, you know, I was employee number two at the district, had to hire everybody. Uh, we built that thing up over a period of about two and a half years. We had uh, three frack fleets working out of there and, you know, just making uh, killer margins at that point yeah. in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it was it was almost obscene. Actually, it was obscene. Uh, well, that was, but it was, I mean, that was ground zero for that. Yeah. 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 But, uh, you know, as much bureaucracy as was at Schlumberger, ultimately found out Weatherford was a little bit worse. You know, it was them coming out of previous five years having compiled like 300 acquisitions mm-hmm. globally and trying to put all that under one roof under one banner it was a bit of a nightmare and, and the frack division was the only organically grown division out of all the rest have been acquisitions and you know we had a lot of good people that knew how to run frack operations from Halliburton and Schlumberger and you know the, the big competitors but there were just a, a lot of internal impediments that were you know limited them from being successful in late 05 is when uh, one of our, our pre- uh, ultimately ended up being the, the president of the new company, stumbled upon a guy completely by accident who was looking for a, a, a frat company to invest in. And uh, uh, it's kind of a funny story. So this is Charlie Lycombe, yeah. uh, who I think a lot of people probably know in, in the space, uh, runs his own energy investment fund and firm right now, but CSL Capital. But uh, back then he was working for another firm and they he, they sent him on a, a mission to, to North Texas to try and find a company to invest into. Was down there looking at a group called Jetstar that was operating yeah. out of Gainesville, which I don't know that probably very few people are aware of these days. They've, well, they've, they've been gone for quite a while. But, well, uh, now they're Quasar, right? Yeah, well, yeah, that, so. that's true. And uh, I don't know, they had some issues the day he was down there. Their frack uh, wasn't going. And so uh, a mutual friend had introduced him to a guy named Dennis McKee, who I had worked with the whole time there at Weatherford. And uh, Dennis went and grabbed Charlie and he was going to bring him out to one of our job sites there in, in, in the Barnett and uh, Vern Canna or somebody. And we had some delays getting sand on site that morning. And so we weren't, uh, hadn't started pumping yet. And so Dennis and, and Charlie went to a Waffle House right there off of uh, I-35W over by where the Cabela's is there north of Fort Worth. and. Uh, they sat there and I think Dennis felt like he was probably wasting his time, you know, taking this pretty young, yeah. you know, guy in to just show him a frack job and didn't really even know why he was there. And so they started just kind of talking over coffee there at Waffle House. Well, why are you down here? Well, you know, I'm supposed to come see this frack, you know, work for this investment firm. We're hoping to make some investment. And, but you know, we've got money to deploy, but don't really have a management team. And so Dennis is like, well, I've been thinking about putting a, business plan together for a while and I've got a management team said I just don't have any money so <laughs> so basically sitting there at Waffle House they those two you know napkined up a, a an agreement and within two weeks there was a signed deal and you know Dennis leaves Weatherford and Bobby Chapman was the other kind yeah. of principal at, at, at Weatherford he left and then uh, a couple weeks later uh, 
Katie Passons, good friend of mine, left, and then I left, and you know we started Liberty Pressure Pumping, um, which was Barnett focused. Right. All it was really the first private equity backed startup in the pressure pumping business. What year are we talking about? So that would have been the fall of 05. I mean, that is truly the beginning. Yeah. 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 So that was the fall of 05. We had a little less than $100 million committed. We, we built three fleets. Uh, timeline's a little fuzzy in my head now, but we had, we had launched into the Hainesville, and I think we're putting a fourth fleet in the Barnett, and uh, Trican Well Services stepped in in early 07 and bought us. And... Uh, um, and then we continued some growth through uh, the Fayetteville Shale and then up in the Texas Panhandle, you know, all, all the popular yep. plays at that time. Uh, but, uh, you know, Trican continued to kind of let us run uh, somewhat uh, uninhibited here in, in the U.S. I mean, they, they didn't have a presence in mm-hmm. the U.S. And we, we still ran under the Liberty Pressure Pumping moniker until, uh, I guess, January 1st of 2010. And uh, I, I was running the U.S. operations uh, for them. We, we acquired uh, the, the Vanguard stimulation mm-hmm. services. So we were doing a little consolidation, gave us another footprint in, in central Oklahoma. Um, and uh, that was right coming out of the 2009 financial crisis. So, uh, Yeah, but everything you're describing is still, by comparison, it's just rocket fuel, right? It's, it's straight up. Yeah, well, I mean, 2009 was a complete shit show, but uh, it didn't last long. Right. right. The, the the advent of uh, with the, the Petrahawk, you know, figuring out, hey, we can do these in the oil shales, too, in the Eagleford really helped just, you know, demand for pressure pumping services in, you know, Q1, Q2 of uh, 2010, you mm-hmm. know, started to outpace anything we'd ever seen before. And, you know, plus with the... Marcellus and the Utica kind of coming online and having gas, you know, available so close to a, a, a huge uh, demand market up there. Uh, you know, we just saw a complete resurgence again. And, and, uh, and that's when it's so, you know, leading up to mission well services, uh, uh, Charlie Lycom, who right. I, I known from the Liberty inception, um, started knocking on my door, wanting to see if I was interested in doing another startup. And at the time it wasn't really like startups that they, they can be draining. You're, you're about to find this out, John. So, yeah, it's tough. Or you're, you're probably finding that out right now, but yeah. um, I mean, they, they can definitely be draining. And John was, decided to start his business at minus $20 a barrel. I so hate, he's, he's looking for the maximum challenge. Here. It is all uphill from here. I mean, that's a great thing about it. Well, I yeah. do have infinite re- revenue growth right now. Since yeah. I had zero. So that's good. A quick word from our sponsors. And then we're right back to the show. Prang & Associates, the global energy search leader. Prang & Associates is the world's leading executive search firm totally dedicated to the energy industry. Over our 39 years, we have assisted more than 750 management teams and boards in 75 countries and conducted nearly 3,600 engagements. For more information, please visit prang.com. Daniel Energy Partners, in-basin research you can trust a leading provider of U.S. oil field research known for its original boots-on-the-ground research approach, as well as its famous barbecue events. Daniel Energy Partners utilizes both its extensive network of top oil field professionals and frequent in-basin field tours to provide real-time market intelligence. Visit DanielEP.com for more information. Galtway Marketing. Answer this question. What makes your company different? 
you have seven seconds to catch a customer's attention. Galtway Marketing can build your brand and craft your message for maximum impact across all your marketing efforts. Visit galtwaymarketing.com slash O360 to bring your company into the 21st century. Thank you to our sponsors. And now back to the show. I mean, that's that's something to put in a pitch book. Yeah, no, <laughs> right. I mean, that's, that's great. Uh, but uh, we, uh, uh, so Charlie was knocking on my door. I was kind of in a comfortable spot at, at Trican, um, you know, making a good salary, stock options, you know, growing company. Uh, I mean, and, young family. You were, yeah, yeah, you were, I mean, yeah. I had four kids, and uh, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, it was just I, I wasn't really looking for a career move, but uh, he he kept knocking, kept twisting my arm, and uh, you know, the the target was to to go to South Texas, uh, which I was excited about because I'd actually been trying to push Trican to open up a base in South Texas, and um, ultimately it was the decision was do you go to the Marcellus or you go to South Texas, in kind of early 2010, and and. Uh, Trican had some relationships with some clients from Canada that were operating in Marcellus. And so ultimately that ended up becoming the, the primary focus. And uh, I I don't know that I disagreed, but, you know, when there is some aspect to a business like this, it's so dependent upon personnel and equipment. You know, you kind of use a, a, an analogy to the Army. You don't want to outrun your supply lines, right? Mm-hmm. And so you get too far ahead of that or you get too far out of your comfort zone of what you know how to do business. You, know, you just unexpected. You don't know what you don't know. And when you step out into some of these areas, uh, for the first few people that got into the, the Marcellus in Pennsylvania and then obviously, you know, the, the debacle that was, you know, short-lived in New York, uh, there, there was a learning curve for people up there. I mean, you were stepping into, you're bringing an industry into people's backyards. That while there was oil and gas there, there wasn't shale play oil and gas right. there, and it, it was a, a big challenge for people for for years. Yeah. It still still is, yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, I ended up uh, uh, finally conceding to, to Charlie. We went and started Mission Well Services. Uh, we were uh, fracking coil in South Texas, uh, pretty much exclusively. Uh, we built up to about. I think it was about 140,000 horsepower and three or four coil uh, fleets. And uh, ran it, had some really good years there. Um, 11 and 12 were, were amazing. You know, 13, uh, we started to see a little bit of oversupply into the market. You know, there was a lot of activity, but there was also a lot of horsepower. And so we were looking for an exit and ultimately ended up selling to Calfrac there at mm-hmm. the end of the summer uh, in 13. And then basically the day we sold Good the timing. horse when I came here to Evolution. So, right. you know, it's amazing. And John, I know you want to get to it, but when you, I, first of all, thanks for that story and the catch up because it's amazing how quickly 2005 to 2020, it doesn't feel like 15 years. And when you describe those stories, like I remember all that, I remember how, you know, whatever you were selling or working on went from zero to a hundred almost overnight. And then the, when you talk about how things started to slow down, there was an oversupply back in 13. Well, obviously 14 is when that really came to fruition. And if you think about how quickly 2014 to now has actually gone, does 24, 2014 does not feel like it was six years ago or whatever six years is supposed to feel like. <laughs> you know, like it feels it like a doesn't. long time to me. <laughs> you know, the, the other interesting thing this morning, I was listening to Squawk Box and, and uh, Kramer was on there talking about the pharmaceutical industry and there was a particular pharmaceutical company I won't name that they were talking about it come up with a novel uh, antiviral drug and he made the comment about, you know, 
they were not really looking to make money and how great this was and, you know, how they've really taken it in the shorts because they've talking about the pharmaceutical industry as a whole, which there's, you know, people on both sides of that argument. And I was thinking about that as he was saying this. I'm going, what a goofball. And, you know, he, he was critical of the oil and gas industry. And I think about the oil and gas industry when he's when I'm sitting here listening to this on Squawk Box this morning. We're talking about the pharmaceutical industry and everything they've done. You know, that wouldn't have been possible without the oil and gas industry, honestly, when you think about the power and everything that goes into to, uh, to everything. But also the level of intelligence that exists in the oil field when you're talking about Schlumberger hiring all these engineers and all these other companies hiring all these engineers. And what we've been able to do as an industry to make energy relatively low cost, be able to become energy superpower in such a short amount of time. We're talking that what you just documented was how the U.S. became a consumer of foreign oil to the number one producer of domestic oil and gas in the world uh, in a very short amount of time. Yes, there was a lot of value destruction. Uh, Yes, there was a lot of capital consumed. But had that not happened, we wouldn't be even talking about negative oil prices or where we are today because the the stuff that you were part of the technology you've unlocked and continue to unlock with some of your peers is what is allowing this this challenge to enter in our commodity business today so just wanted to add that there i think it's i think it's pretty interesting a couple of the names you mentioned you know bobby chapman's now uh over at catalyst backed by morgan stanley with seth moore and uh, it's just I've always loved how how small yeah. the world is in the oil field and how everybody that I've had the benefit of knowing or know how everybody worked together one time or another and and sometimes you stay working together and sometimes you split your ways. But well, and, you know, really, world. that's what, uh, what you know. Many of our friends talk about energy energy transition, mm-hmm. and the solution has to come from us. Like what we're doing on this podcast. Look, we're not changing the world today, but. We're bringing fresh ideas. We're bringing fresh people. The stories, all these things need to be talked about because, you know, we're, we cannot be, we have to be part of the solution. Whatever that next step is, the efficiencies, whatever parts of energy transition happen, a lot of the ideas and people are going to come from oil and gas. Well, and, and it's, in, it's become inbred into our culture that, you know, efficiency is the only way to survive. And so, you know, whether it's, you know, having businesses that operate 24 hours a day, you know, through the holidays, you know, yeah, you're out there fracking on Christmas morning. I mean, other industries don't do this. And, and you know, I, I think one byproduct of what's going to happen with, you know, with all these mass layoffs that are happening today, you know, tomorrow, yeah. over the next few weeks is you're going to get a lot of people that have this enhanced work ethic going out into other industries and those other industries are going to benefit from having those people come into their fold because I mean, honestly, there's aren't a lot of, you know, a lot of places at five o'clock, the lights turn off, mm-hmm. right? And they don't come back on till 8am or, you know, that's a good point. They don't answer the phone. 9 a.m. 10 a.m. Yeah. You're I mean, and, and I think that the, the oil field has done a Government really employees. good job of, of just, beating a good work ethic into a very large mass of people. And I'm not just talking, right. you know, just the, the blue collar workers that are on the well site, but it's expected out of the engineers. It's expected out of the yeah. managers. It's expected right. out of the sales staff. I mean, it, everybody is set to a very high bar. So, so if we don't let John ask a question, he is going <laughs> to lose his mind here. He's he kind of, he's kind of, he's so prepared. He's and we just very ruined, prepared. We were, you and I are just complete goofballs. Yeah, Josh I, is wearing 
pink shoelaces oh. today, by the way. I look great. It's yeah. spring. Well, you guys are just lucky I put pants on today. This yeah, yeah. thanks for combing your hair. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, it's good to see you combed hair. Yeah. Okay. All right, John. All right, John. This All right. is your Come moment. On. Come on. All right, so the deposition begins. <laughs> Raise your right hand. The grand Okay, question. so, you know, we started off the, the discussion on a, a somber note, talking about the challenges of the industry, but you guys are outperforming on a relative basis. Talk about your utilization, how many fleets you have today that are running. Just give us an update. Yeah, you bet. So, I mean, we we are doing better than most. Um, and I'd say even the past year or so, we've we've been somewhat in that right. position. You know, there, there have been a lot of headwinds, as we were uh, uh, talking about, um, for our segment of the industry. Um, and, and we've been navigating the, those fairly well. Yeah. And, you know, we were very fortunate to have uh, a differentiating technology versus mm -hmm. our peers. And all of our growth uh, to date has all been uh, basically demand driven. So uh, other than the, the very first fleet, which we deployed in 16, all of our other fleets of equipment have been built basically on, a, uh, on the strength of a contract that we've then been able to go out and get, get financing on. And so, you know, provided some kind of interlocked loyalty with our clients because right. there is a, a contractual basis on it, but there's also a desire and, you know, we, we can't really overlook what the, the overarching theme of 2019 was for our industry, which was the whole ESG perspective. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we are able, um, from, from that ESG perspective with our, our technology and whether it's the, the fuel of choice, you know, natural gas is just a cleaner burning fuel and the way we burn it's even more enhanced than, you know, through a lot of the, the tier four uh, solutions that you can do with diesel emissions now, but it's quieter, it's a smaller footprint, requires less people. So there's more automation. It's just a more efficient product that, uh, you know, it, it's going to be challenging to grow in this market, but right. we are fortunate that the, you know, the, the original six fleets we built, they're all out working every day. We have a seventh fleet built, which we're holding off on deployment for, uh, agreed to, to push deployment back to later in this year right. uh, with our client to, you know, hoping for a better day on, on oil prices. So, so you, you mentioned, uh, I guess demand has tapered off, which we can see that that's obvious, but take us back to last summer. Seemed like every, everybody on the EMP side was really excited to learn about electric frack. Talk about the inbound call volume you had then, and then tell us where it is today. Sure. Do that from the perspective of domestic EMPs. And then I'd be curious if you could take the next step to national oil companies globally. What's the opportunity set to take fracking, electric fracking outside the U.S.? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, it was definitely a, a top down driven initiative uh, at, at the large ENPs last year. So, uh, you know, along with, as we were talking about the, the, the need for free cash flow amongst all these uh, companies, the investors you were getting in had a new set of requirements, obviously, that a lot of these EMPs were having to abide by. And it was a lot of the, the environmental, the social, the governance issues uh, that, you know, responsible investors um, want to have within their portfolio. And so the inbound calls, which I'd say prior to 2019 had primarily been economic driven, mm -hmm. hey, you know, we can replace the cost of diesel with a, a relatively low cost, nearly free cost of available natural gas at a well site. Yeah, probably Q2 of last year, the inbound calls really started coming. And it was from the majors and the mid majors, large independents, uh, those groups that had executive level initiatives 
impacts for the environmental, uh, uh, you know, and it's really the the carbon footprint mm -hmm. of, of their operations. Um, you know, what is your greenhouse gas emissions profile for a, a well site? And because of the volume of energy required to perform a hydraulic fracturing treatment, you know, we are one area where it's just, you know, drilling rig, you got, you know, maybe 2000 horsepower out there running for mm -hmm. a few days. And, but you know, on a hydraulic frac site, you've got 25,000 horsepower out there roaring for 18 hours a day. Right. I mean, it's, it, it is a lot of energy consumption. So it is a big impact with that carbon footprint. The large EMPs were all running uh, kind of green task force. How, how can we eliminate diesel? How can we lower our carbon footprint? Uh, and in doing all this, you know, hopefully bring costs and stuff down as well. Ultimately, um, you know, we, we engaged with uh, a number of those groups um, to, to try and work mm -hmm. some deals. There are various levels of success as with right. any negotiations. But uh, uh, I think even into, you know, say, January, February this year, there were still a couple of groups that were still running these initiatives and still looking for ways to do it. Now, in the past 30 days, you know, everybody has gone right. into complete bunker mentality and uh, both literally and figuratively, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody's leaving their homes, but, you know, yeah. companies are just trying to figure out how, EMP companies are just trying to figure out how to survive. And so, right. you know, the, the inbound calls from, from supply chain groups or from uh, operational management groups uh, have, I'd say as of today, nearly completely evaporated. But the, and that's driven by just the market being crap. That's driven by the as market. As opposed to people not wanting the technology. That, that's correct. And, and okay. I think, if and when demand does start to recover, yeah. there's probably going to be a, a more enhanced focus on that because people aren't going to go back, you know, people that were running 10 frac fleets are not going to go from zero back to 10, right? right? They're going to step back into their, their operations. So they're going to be able to be a little bit more selective. And at least the first few fleets that come off the fence are going to be those tier four diesel engines. So they're going to be, you know, somebody's got, mm. I don't have any spare equipment, but... You know, one of my competitors in the space has some electric right. frack equipment sitting around that they may be able to put out to to, to work. So those are going to be the first ones to come back off right. the fence. And, you know, ultimately, they may be the only ones to come back off the fence, depending on where demand actually goes. So. Okay. Let's try to make sure nobody drives into a wall after uh, hearing some of these things. It's, <laughs> it's, it's going to come back. It is going to be a lot different for sure. It's just when. So, so can I? Continue no, no, my this deposition. Is, yes. Okay. So I have a few more because. Deposition. Well, you know, we need to beat them up a little bit. So here's, as you think about the market, <laughs> we've got really bad oil prices. Uh, we'll assume that diesel, I haven't looked at what diesel prices are today, but I'm probably lower than where they've been. And yet you're also starting to see nat gas prices creep higher. There's an expectation they'll go higher as associated gas production comes off. How does that play? I mean, that would, in theory, hurt the economics of an electric fleet. Or do the ESG benefits outweigh that cost to the producer? So, for sure, it it, it diminishes it, but those diminished returns are very relative. Uh, and I think we ran an analysis based on our fuel consumption and an average volumetric fuel consumption of natural gas for for our uh, fleet versus a, a conventional fleet burning mm -hmm. diesel. And this was back when diesel was. 275 a gallon delivered to the field. I, I don't know what it is right. today. Natural gas would have to be at like $28 okay. to be break even. So there's a long runway 
gas can go a lot higher and right. we are still at a huge economic savings versus uh, diesel. Right. But, but I would say that even if that, you know, got flipped around a little more because in, in other countries, and I know you said there's maybe a lead to that later, but yeah. you get in other places and it may be different today, but like last year, like in Argentina, I mean, diesel's six bucks a gallon. I mean, it, it is different economics right. down there. And so it, Every market has to be looked at a little individually, but but I think overall uh, it, it is still a fuel savings, and, and I don't see that slight adjustment uh, negating the environmental aspects at all. So, so I've got a question on the topic of ESG as it relates to <clears throat> operators, kind of there being a demand being driven, not so much focused on on fuel choice, but but the uh, air quotes. Uh, ESG uh, uh, friendly way of, of completions are the are the operators looking at you to provide the metrics of methane emissions and all that or are they calculating that on their own or is that even being discussed uh, I'd say both um, I, I think they have some estimates um, we have done uh, some pretty extensive testing kind of stretching back probably since November of last year both in a controlled environment at our uh, manufacturing facility where, where we can test units uh, as well as uh, we've done some limited field testing, emissions testing uh, to date. We've got some more kind of planned on the books in conjunction with one of our clients. Um, and, you know, obviously everybody's uh, that's, you know, the conventional engine manufacturers, uh, you know, they have a narrative to, to spin on this. Um, Ultimately, there, there's a lot of variables that go in, and I think it does take an analysis of that client's specific um, kind of program, like how many hours are you pumping in a day? That, that mm -hmm. goes a lot into what the savings are going to be. Um, it, you know, what is the actual composition of the gas that makes a big difference? What are your alternatives to do with that gas? Are you going to have to flare it? if we're not able to burn it. So, I mean, that goes into yeah. it. And then, you know, when you, and something that's much harder to, to analyze, but some of the big companies do do it. Um, uh, and I, I got invited, uh, uh, or we got invited. I, I attended, um, one of my colleagues actually presented at uh, a, a supplier sustainability uh, conference uh, this past year uh, for ConocoPhillips. Uh -huh. And, you know, what they're looking at is not just, you know, what is their, you know, that their people touch, what's their carbon footprint, but then you go to kind of the, the stage two. Okay. What about your suppliers? Okay. What about their suppliers? And, you know, yeah. this is where I haven't seen it, but you, you talk about like the Michael Moore's new deal he came out with right. slashing the, uh, the EV in the electric vehicle industry about how dirty it is to make right. batteries and all this stuff. So, you know, don't just look at that first level, how, you know, when you go back to, you know, that diesel droplet is being produced probably in West Texas, right? Or that hydrocarbon mm -hmm. material. And it's probably getting shipped over here to the Gulf Coast, changing hands multiple times, you know, various ways of transport, 
truck pipeline, all these different things. It's going through a frining process. You're getting diesel made and then you're shipping it back to West Texas. And so there's a, a just a huge flow path, which I mean, there, there's a dollar cost to right. it. But there's a, you know, there's, there's an emissions profile or just an efficiency profile. And when you look at lean manufacturing, it violates so many principles right. of that to pull something out of the ground, do something to it, and then put it back in, basically put it back into touches. the ground. Yeah. 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 Do you, so. when you go to those conferences that are about sustainability and ESG, and again, it's important, but there's also a lot of hypocrisy, right? Huh. And my question to you is, I mean, obviously you're working on something that can lower emissions, which is good. But do those same people that are beating you up or want to contract with you because of that, do they ever, you know, look at maybe where the capital equipment is coming from? I don't want to name countries here since we've got a global audience, but some that might not be so friendly socially or on governance or do you I mean, I, how do you address I, that specifically has not been asked? OK. Um, and, and like I said, I, I think w one of the interesting things, again, kind of stepping back to that, that this specific sustainability uh, forum that, that we were invited to was they kind of had themselves up on this map and they, they, they had kind of, I, I guess, tiers of stepping into this sustainability and they had them kind of in the middle, but actually more towards the infancy side of being able to adopt this stuff. Yeah. But you looked at certain companies and in, in, uh, in other industries like uh, Toyota is one that stood out and, and supposedly they're like one of the, the best, uh, uh, markers of this that, I mean, they truly drive down throughout their supply chain to make sure that, you know, from a, at least from an environmental mm -hmm. perspective, that everything is being sourced responsibly. And, and so I, I think our industry is going to have to continue to evolve that direction 100%. because yes. as, and especially, you know, the competition for investment dollars is going to get more and more competitive here for, on the E&P side, you know, right finding somebody that's going to help fund you and those investors who just let's face it, there's less dollars in the world today than there were, you know, a few weeks ago due to the, the capital destruction we've seen. So I, I think all these little check marks are going to be more and more important. If over it's, time. you know, to, to David and uh, John's comments that if ESG is done in the right spirit, it's very powerful. Well, it well, also means ESG more jobs is, in America too, yeah. in theory, right? Frankly, and that's you know. But I think I think everybody has has been using the ESG concept in air quotes somewhat hypocritically and to their benefit to meet their certain needs. And what's not been done to date is um, the industry coming together to drive a simple and very pragmatic methodology around just overall risk management, because that's what it is. People want to know, you know, <clears throat> are you a sustainable investment? Do you have the, do you have the right behaviors and management and leadership? Do you have the right culture? Are you making the right investments in technology to run a successful business and deal with certain risks? Now, COVID-19 slash OPEC plus was a true black swan event and nobody really uh, saw that one come in or is dealing with it is as much as I'd like to, but I think, I think it'll be interesting. Um, you know, as this, as this conversation develops, it's really changing the mindset. I think so many companies for the longest time have been focused on reporting financial results and the results. So it's looking back and not necessarily looking forward or looking at the health, uh, in the mindset of the business in the present and how it looks going future. And, and so 
I think getting getting some collaboration and getting the industry to come together to drive the narrative. Uh, I think the operators are certainly going to be more dependent on the service companies to provide that transparency. Because let's face it, there are only a handful of operators that actually do everything from uh, from stop you know start to finish. Uh, they rely on third parties, contractors, and and you know, the contractors rely on other third parties to do what they do. And so I think there is going to be a deeper dive into that. And I apologize you guys for, for thinking that way. I'll it just gets really hard to quantify because there's it, not any set rules, it, right? It, it so. does. And, and so we, we've got to come up with a pragmatic measurement. And that's what we're yeah. doing at the ESG council and the energy ESG council. And, and one of the reasons I'm going to ask you to at least be a member of the, the service committee, because we're, we're, getting the upstream services sector, midstream and downstream sector to kind of come together because a large percentage of the operators, uh, service companies, et cetera, they don't even understand it. There's no good guidelines there. The bigger companies have been addressing these questions and issues with some of these investors and rating agencies for a while, but it's coming. We'll, we'll put a, the, the uh, banks a link gonna, to that the, in the, the bio. Banks, yeah, the banks are, are looking into it and the insurers are looking into it. Everybody from the financial services sector is starting it's to look into it. It's well, part of your credit rating so as, a, as a business. Yeah. Well, one of, the, uh, one of the partners of the program is PISA, Petroleum Equipment and Services Association. Leslie Byer, she's been a guest on the program. She's a big part of that as well. So we'll put a link because the ESG is important, and we need to make sure that people are very aware of this. We'll put a link to both PISA and uh, EESG. Yeah, well, Leslie's well. Leslie's on our board, and yeah, and um, you know the trade organizations like PISA and others uh, are going to be the conduit which we get and educate the industry as a whole. So, John, you got another question? Then we probably got yeah, <laughs> we got time. We got time. Uh, we got all day actually. Um, it's 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 Corona time. It's Corona yeah, time. I mean, we the everybody's going? schedules yeah, are pretty you much put a mask on and walk window. back outside. So, so, as we managed through a downturn now. And notwithstanding the fact that your utilization is robust relative to others, are you, again, I looked, we all looked at LinkedIn. We looked, we know, we probably all know people that have been let go, really good people. How are you using this market to maybe upgrade employees? I hate to say that because some of your employees might be listening. I'm not trying to say that anyone's bad, but just, you know, it's a chance to, to bring in good talent. It is. And, um, you know, we have not been without casualty having to lay off as well, yeah. unfortunately. Um, you know, I, I agreed to delay deployment of our, our newest fleet to later this year. Well, mm -hmm. Unfortunately, we had already staffed up for right. it. And so we ended up having to uh, uh, kind of make some corrections on, on the headcount to, to adjust. But for sure, I mean, you, you always want to bring good people in if you can. I mean, mm -hmm. if, and, and if, if when good people are available, uh, that can add value to the business. I mean, look, we don't run a perfect business. We, we've got a lot of inefficiencies where we can continue, even in this environment, to help, you know, uh, shave costs, uh, reduce nonproductive time. And so we have a number of initiatives uh, in place. And some of those are going to require bringing people on to do them because, I mean, we wouldn't have these deficiencies if, you know, we had people that weren't trying to wear too many hats and just things going unattended to. Right. Mm -hmm. So there are some, uh, some people, just like you said, I, I've got a lot of, uh, people that have worked with over the past few years that, uh, have unfortunately found themselves unemployed here lately and reached out to talk to a couple about mm -hmm. some opportunities. And so we, we are definitely, okay. um, 
and you know, it's not hiring 20 people, but there may be four or five that right. we want to pick up that are good, high quality individuals. I've looked back at my notes here. One of the things that, uh, building teams and leading startups, that's one of your things you, you have an excellent team, uh, at, at the top. And, you know, I'm, I know a lot of your, your senior level and your mid-level people, uh, just wanted to kind of point that out. Like you've, you've done a good job putting together a team of just creative thinkers in a historically, you know, in a, in a different and a business that hasn't seen much change. Yeah. Well, and you know, a couple of things about that. So, I mean, we, we have a differentiating technology, but we're still a service industry. And at the end of the day, people still have to provide that service. You've, you've got a different set of tools to do it, but you can't have a bunch of monkeys out there right. trying to uh, operate this stuff. I mean, your, your service quality will go completely down the toilet. So you still got to have good people. And, and, in, and in some ways, when you've got better technology, you've got to have even better people because it's not as simple, right? I mean, we don't fix things with wrenches and hammers. We fix it with multimeters and guys, you know, programming. So it, it's, it's a different skill set. I mean, there's still some mechanical know-how, but, you know, I, I'd say our general level of interaction that our employees have to have with our equipment is a lot higher than a traditional frat company that may have mechanics that mm-hmm fix stuff when it breaks you know we'll, our equipment operators have to fix it we'll so. do a, uh, a a post at the end here and, and on our website but uh what is your website your your because uh, i want people to go again a lot of people are going to know exactly what you do yep. a lot of people are not going to know what you do and the comparison between historic uh, traditional equipment versus this is- yeah because we, we've got a lot of cool pictures and stuff both of individual pieces of equipment as well as overviews of well sites with our equipment rigged up so anybody familiar with the frac equipment could uh, see the difference is pretty, pretty uh, stark for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, our, our website's evolutionws.com. Evolutionws.com. All right. We'll put that in the, yeah. the show notes too. But if you're, you, if you're unfamiliar with uh, evolution, uh, just listening somewhere, you need, you do need to go look up their website, check it out and see the difference between what they're doing. And he's right. It's, you're not, I mean, obviously there's wrenches out there, but right. a lot more computer equipment than people yeah, might expect. Yeah, a lot expect. of electronics and, you know, it, it's, it, it's pretty I'll wrap it up with so. one last question. Yeah. So final one for me. You got the one fleet that's presently idle, mm-hmm. brand new. When the market recovers, do you envision trying to have a similar arrangement with contractual backing to put that to work or is this the time where you take that seventh fleet and uh, well i'd do say some practice work for various cmps to let them try out the yeah technology. i mean right now there's just there's not enough interest for us to kind of have today have it right. staffed right you know for for there's there's very little spot work pretend the market on. was strong sure you go the contract route you know you like go? oil 22 dollars a barrel real strong <laughs> yeah well uh, so, so that specific fleet is still spoken for. Okay. We just delayed the, the deployment Fair of enough. it. The point in time when demand does come back or as, you know, you look out into the future as, as contracts roll off, you know, we'll just have to see what is, what's the, what's our availability of capital to be able right. to go out and buy equipment. I mean, that's the other thing right now is uh, it, it's challenging even for us in this environment. If we wanted to go out and, you know, borrow money to, to build another fleet, I mean, it's, it, it's a challenge. Yeah. I mean, there, there's not a lot of people that see a uh, good prospect and returns in, into this market. And uh, I think re- something structurally is definitely going to have to change uh, in, in the upstream business. And I don't know exactly what it's going to be. I've got some kind of thoughts in my head, but I mean, some, somehow it's got to be significantly cheaper to pull oil and gas out of the ground, right. out of these shale plays. And, you know, ultimately it may end up being that, uh, 
you know, during all of this uh, time where, where people are kind of retrenched and, you know, big E&Ps are, I'm sure, spending some R&D efforts and, and dollars to look at alternatives to fracking. I mean, th that's really the big cost on a well now. I mean, 20,000 foot wells in some areas are being drilled in three or four days. I mean, it, it's not the drilling that's that's costing so much money. It's, it's still the completions. And so... Okay. You know, somebody invents an enzyme that can eat shale or, you know, some bacteria or that'll know, go over some, well. Yeah. Something else yeah. other than pouring, you know, just massive volumes of, of sand and water into the ground at high pressure and rate that, that's more economic and, and, you know, is effective, maybe not as effective, but maybe more economically effective. Mm -hmm. So, well, Ben, to, to kind of wrap this up, we going back to Josh and I's area, you know, uh, John adds a level of sophistication with his questions and they're a little bit harder questions than we like to ask, but <laughs> we like to, we like to ask this last question, which is, is there any advice that, that you would give to any of our listeners that, that has served you well, or that you wish you had had 10, 20 years ago, uh, in your career? that you would share with us? Uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, look, looking back, uh, I've been very fortunate uh, to, to have lots of opportunities kind of presented to me. And, and for the most part, I've jumped at them, uh, not without some anxiety making decisions <laughs> to do it. But uh, when looking back, you know, I, I don't remember the anxiety as much. I remember having a few conversations like with my dad, you know, like, should I, you know, step out and do this and do a, you know, start up and those kind of things. And he's like, ah, you're still young enough. If it completely goes in the toilet, you can recover, you know, those kinds <laughs> of conversations. But I, I just say, if, if you have opportunities or, you know, and there's a lot of people that are being forced to find opportunity right now, you know, don't, don't shy away from change. And, and that's something that I think, uh, you know, at least myself when I was younger, it was definitely, you know, cause some apprehension anytime there's change. And, you know, as people, we kind of like comforts and things to always be, you know, the same and somewhat predictable around us. But I, I don't know, I, I guess, you know, as I've grown a little older and just a little bit more experienced in life, come to kind of embrace change and, you know, even a little bit of chaos every now and then, it kind of keeps things exciting. And uh, definitely, uh, you know, that opportunities don't present themselves when you see the same thing every day. So mm -hmm. I think as, as you, you know, get to meet more people, get to see opportunities, try and solve problems, you know, it, it sometimes may come with a little bit of discomfort, but it's, it's really not a bad thing. So sound advice, John, I can't believe you haven't uh, pressed him on the, the barbecue yet. Are we just going to let him off the hook here and say he doesn't have to come back and, and cook again? Well, they did cook. Well, yes. Right. I, I don't think they placed very well. Well, that's not I completely mean, true. You got to work on it. We, we got we got graded. I I wasn't part of the team. I was part of the drinking team, not the yeah. cooking team. But um, we uh, that's important too, though. It is important too. We well, beat me. I, was, I came in thirty sixth place out of forty two. So that's okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. But no, I, I mean we bought that cooker basically just for the the show. So yeah, we'll, so you're we'll be back. You're going to cook again. Yes. Good. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely have it there. Again, Details so. will be coming out soon. Yeah. How, and John, real quick before, how's it gone? Your first month in business? I mean, are you, you doing all right? Uh, bleeding ulcer, upset yeah. stomach. Um, <laughs> otherwise I'm doing okay. Okay. I've good. been getting a lot more later in the evening phone calls from them just checking in, which is unusual. Yeah. 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 Well, and I got a late night research memo last night. I, no I'm kidding. I, so that was impressive. Yeah. Well, it is that yeah. time of the year. 
And we'll, so you're our guest host. We'll let you do a, uh, what is your website where people can find you? Well, we're still f- f- developing the website. Yes. Uh, it'll, it'll be danielep.com. Okay. Hopefully in a couple of weeks. Daniel EP. They can get you on LinkedIn in the yes. interim. Uh, yeah, that's the best way to catch me or just call me on my cell phone. <laughs> and then evolution. WS.com. You have a great team of people. I'm I'm holding back mentioning them all by names, but just because there's so many, I don't want to leave anybody out. But you do have a a unique group. You guys are a unique company. It's been fun to watch your leadership style take that company through, you know, where you guys have been the last couple of years. So I I really do. You know, I know the, the three of us appreciate your time coming on. Thank you for letting us I guess annoy you to the point where you find like I, I need to do this or else they're going to keep calling me. So um, thank you. No, that's good. I, I thank you for for the inviting me on, having me on. Well, I, do, I do need to give a quick shout out to my kids. Okay, let's hear it because Jake is what your youngest. Yeah, Jake's my youngest. Who you you've met uh, freshman in high school. I got twin daughters that are graduating high school this month, or maybe they already have everything that's going on. And then uh, I got my oldest boy. uh, He's a second year student, Caleb, at uh, University of Virginia. And and where are the girls going? Didn't they got into... uh, Edie and Anna are both going to University of Arkansas in the fall. Or they're going to be sitting in the living room doing online classes. I'm not sure. (laughs) It it would stink to be a high school senior right now getting you know, oh, yeah. they're not walking. Uh, no prom. No prom. Yeah, that is, that's yeah, a tough it's, place. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, listen, thank you very much for coming on. Ben Bodishbaugh. Um, David, we're going to wrap this up real quick, but this is, we are, I want, I want to give a very formal, uh, thank you to the sponsors that we had for season one. It was a phenomenal run to, to build that up. Uh, we're going into season two with just a, an all-star guest list and people coming on. So it's, thank you for everything, Rob. Do you have any comment on that? It's no, just, no, just really excited about it. We've got some, uh, some other celebrity guest hosts joining us. Uh, <laughs> That's right. We do actually. And, uh, and we've got a great lineup of folks and <clears throat> we, uh, the velocity of our, uh, production will be increasing. We've had, uh, we had a few, few things, uh, in our way, but we've got a lot of, uh, exciting guests like, like Ben, today joining us uh in the near future yep. so look forward to putting those out there for you and you know like i said we got started at the very beginning but ben thanks this is your first podcast you've ever done isn't it this is my first podcast so you don't know if we're good or bad so this is perfect it's great this is this is the best one out I'm there i'm figuring so. you're going to edit a lot out <laughs> some of it perhaps <laughs> well listen that wraps up uh oil Field 360 podcast um Our audience is growing week over week. We appreciate you guys. Tell your friends. Look for us on LinkedIn. You can find us on all the social media channels or your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions, you can email uh, me at josh at oilfield360.com or david at david at oilfield360.com. Jonathan, our sound man extraordinaire, thank you again for your time. Uh, Everybody, practice social distancing. Keep your hands clean. Do what you're supposed to do. This will end. Uh, We're going to get back to some, some level of business as normal, but thank you guys for the your time. Thank you everybody in the room for their time today. Good luck. Cheers. This episode of the Oil Field 360 podcast was brought to you by the following companies. EIV Capital, a growth equity focused private equity firm, which has been providing capital to the North American energy industry since 2009. The team has extensive experience across the entire energy value chain. We invite you to visit EIVCapital.com and learn how we partner with entrepreneurs to build businesses. Merit Advisors, crafting holistic tax solutions to improve your cash flow and add profit back to your bottom line. When it comes to state and local taxes, Merit is the expert in the oil and gas industry. Visit MeritAdvisor.com. World Oil, 
For more than 103 years, World Oil has provided global decision makers with coverage of the latest market intelligence and technological advances relating to the upstream oil and gas industry. To subscribe and learn more about these essential resources, please visit worldoil.com slash subscribe. Thank you to our sponsors, Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler, SimmonsPSC.com, Lockton Global Energy and Marine, Lockton.com, Tomahawk Safety, TomahawkSafety.com, Prang & Associates, Prang.com, Daniel Energy Partners, DanielEP.com, EIV Capital, EIVCapital.com, Galtway Marketing, GaltwayMarketing.com, Range Valuation Services, RangeValuationServices.com, Merit Advisors, MeritAdvisor.com, World Oil, WorldOil.com, Fletcher Azul Tequila, FletcherAzulTequila.com. For more information on today's guest and to learn more about our sponsors, please follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, or at oilfield360.com. Piper Sandler Companies, NYSE PIPR, is a leading investment bank and institutional securities firm driven to help clients realize the power of partnership. Securities brokerage and investment banking services are offered in the U.S. through Piper Sandler & Company, member SIPC and FINRA, in Europe through Piper Sandler Limited, authorized and regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission. Asset management products and services are offered through four separate investment advisory affiliates, U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, SEC-registered Piper Sandler Investment Management, LLC, PJC Capital Partners, LLC, and Piper Sandler and & Company, and Guernsey-based Parallel General Partners Limited, authorized and regulated by the Guernsey Financial Services Commission. Simmons Energy, a division of Piper Sandler, are the energy specialists of Piper Sandler.